The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, welcome back to our last class on this concentration series. And I'd like to start with um, saying a few words and realize that a little bit I'm interrupting you. Some of you are meditating. And sometimes it's better not to interrupt people who are meditating. And so I'm going to interrupt you so that we can meditate. <coughs> the, um, so a few things that I wanted to say. First is um, the topic of concentration has a, or the practice of concentration has a very... Or, uh, prominent place <clears throat> in the classic Buddhist teachings in being the last factor of the Eightfold Path. And uh, the fact that it's the last factor is kind of interesting. Uh, sometimes, you know, mindfulness is a penultimate, and so then follows concentration. And it does a little bit give it a kind of a prominent place of importance and great value. What I wanted to mention now is that um, uh, usually in English we call the different factors of the Eightfold Path with the, with the, we, we add to them the title or the word right. So there's right concentration. And the word is sama. And uh, there is, uh, you know, who knows what it means? You know, this idea of, of uncovering the meaning of these ancient words is a little bit of an art. But uh, one of the greatest um, scholars, who, f- f- foundational scholars for understanding ancient Indic languages, uh, uh, wrote the big dictionary, Monier Williams, of Sanskrit, but Sanskrit and Pali are almost the same. Uh, he wants to say that uh, the word samad is not translated as right, but as complete or whole. So rather than being, the idea of rights kind of implies uh, a purpose. It's the right tool for the right purpose. Whereas um, uh, the word complete or whole suggests that uh, it is, um, um, you know, you're, you're satisfied or it's, this is it. It's a whole, you have the whole thing. There's nothing more to do. It's not a purpose for it. It's just complete in itself. And um, like if you are, <clears throat> if you have a very good rest, say you have a really good nap, the best nap you've ever had, and you wake up and uh, you don't say, I, you could, I guess you could say I had, I had a right rest. Um, but I think maybe it's more natural to say I had a complete rest. I feel completely rested. As opposed to I feel rightly rested. Uh, or um, if you... Or you're doing something and you're f- satisfied with what you do, you might say you're fully satisfied or maybe completely satisfied. But uh, but I don't think we so often in English say I was, it was I was rightly satisfied. I had the right satisfaction, or something. And we, I guess you could say that, but I don't really hear that being said. <clears throat> so the idea that uh, one of the meanings of uh, one of the of this sama samadhi is. Uh, Certainly that it's an appropriate tool for leading to deeper and deeper wisdom and insight. <clears throat> but uh, it also has the meaning that, it, that it's complete. And each of these factors of the Eightfold Path 
are complete factors. They're complete in themselves. They've been completed. They've been made whole. And perhaps they've made whole by working together. And all eight factors of the Eightfold Path are meant to be integrated together or represent, <coughs> represent the, <coughs> the way someone is who has reached some level of maturity, spiritual maturity. And so this represents them being somehow complete, completed or something, altogether. So to think of concentration as, a, as not something we, that's right, but something that's completed or made whole, means that we're made whole. We become whole. We enter into a state, not in order to kind of use the state as a tool, utilitarian tool that we're going to do for some purpose, <clears throat> but we enter into a state that seems deeply satisfying because there's a feeling, of, oh, this is complete now, this is whole. <clears throat> and and uh, what's wonderful about uh, these states of concentration when, is that uh, they can have both functions. They can clearly can enter into them and they feel so satisfying in and of themselves. It feels like this is enough. You know, to be alive is enough. I'm settled. There's nothing more needed. And, um, and for some people, uh, it's, uh, it's transformative to get into these states of concentration because it's so radically different than the ordinary states of mind which are completely consumed perhaps with desire and aversion and expectations and fear. And to have an experience of oneself where the absence of those afflictive states, but more than the absence of them, in the absence of them a feeling that things are good, a sense of confidence and wholeness, of completeness, nothing left out, everything is here. So there can be that uh, with, with concentration and these states that feel so whole, the samadhi states, uh, at the same time uh, are onward leading. They can lead to, uh, for other purposes, they can lead to deeper states of concentration and they can also lead to insight and deep transformative, transformative insight, liberating insight. But for this, uh, this evening, I want to start by emphasizing the sense of wholeness or completeness. And one of the connotations of that that I like for myself is that uh, when we practice Buddhism, uh, we want to practice as if we're whole. And what that means, uh, what, I, what I mean by that, is that uh, we're not at war with ourselves and we're not pushing something away or saying it, or dismissing any part of ourselves, anything going on, but we're somehow opening to be inclusive of all who we are here. And it's easy with concentration practice to practice it in a way that wants to exclude. Um, I want to just exclude something. I don't want to pay attention to something. I don't want to experience something. Some, I want to just go into bliss states, and, if I, and then I'm okay. But uh, I think a healthier approach is that somehow in the samadhi, that we're not excluding, pushing anything away. We're not trying to get rid of anything, but rather enter into a state where, in a sense, everything's included, kind of a sense of wholeness. The thing about that is, though, that uh, when you enter into deep absorption states, uh, there's a lot of things that kind of dissolve and fall away in those states. So you say you want to be inclusive, but, you know, all your, you know, all your, uh, you know, resentment to your neighbor, uh, you know, is not going to be there in the samadhi state. It'll fall away. In the first absorption, the first jhana, uh, it said in the ancient texts that there can be no unwholesome uh, ways of thinking in those states. 
you won't you won't have any unwholesome thoughts about people. You won't be resentful. You won't be lustful. You won't be you know. This, this apparently it's not possible to have it there. And um, and there's a because of that there's often a, fair, a feeling of great goodness in these states. But to focus on the goodness and focus on having these states that are free of unwholesome thoughts and do it in a way that pushes everything else away and kind of wants to deny those, I think doesn't work so well. What works better is to be, you know, is to have, you know, inclusive, to be receptive, to not be at war with anything. And then I think it's easier to drop into a whole concentration rather than a right concentration, something that's whole or complete. Um, And one of the symptoms of concentration that's not whole is when there's a tension builds up as we get concentrated. And it's not uncommon for me to encounter people, especially on retreat, who are trying to get concentrated and they're getting tense in the process and they might get a lot of tension in different parts of their body. Uh, Very common in the face, sometimes around the lips, sometimes around the eyes and the forehead and places. Because of, the, because of their, their exclusive focus. So uh, whole concentration or being whole, being complete, and in that kind of subtleness and maybe acceptance of ourselves that complete means, whole means, that's the foundation by which then we can settle more deeply and uh, develop the concentration. So um, with that, I thought we would do a meditation. And um, you can uh, take a posture, assume a posture, enter into a posture that would be the posture you took if in sitting you were going to manifest being whole, being complete. Somehow that you're, and you'd manifest a certain degree of confidence one of the benefits of strong states of concentration is a very strong feeling of confidence and um, feeling whole. So what, how would you sit? How, how open would you be in your chest? How upright would you be? Would you in some ways, in a relaxed way, lift up your head a little bit so it's dignified and clear and open? And then closing your eyes and Gently, taking a few long, slow, deep breaths. And as you exhale, relax into your seat. Settle in here. Here. And then take a few moments to let your breathing return to normal. And part of the emphasis on a good posture is to have a stable posture. A common metaphor for this meditation is to sit as if you're a mountain. Stable, strong, firm. So your body has stability. Sometimes felt by really feeling your uh, sitting bones against the cushion or against the chair feeling your feet against the floor, feeling the base of your body and how the rest of the body arises up out of that base. 
and then softening around the belly. So maybe there's a relaxing or letting go all the way down to the pelvic floor. Almost as if the pelvic floor receives and holds lovingly the weight of your torso above it. And then noticing, if you can, how the weight of your torso moves down through your vertebrae. And perhaps you can make some subtle adjustments, rocking forward or back or sideways slightly, or maybe either making more of an S in the curve or less of an S. Just to see if you can get the weight of your body moving right along the, right from vertebrae to vertebrae, balance there. And then as a way of beginning the process of getting focused, we'll use the seven points of relaxation. You begin with the top of your head, your scalp, and feel what's there. And for the next couple of breaths, to soften and relax the tops of your head. And if there's no movement of relaxation, maybe there's just kind of, almost like you're imagining, a little bit more space and openness in your scalp. And then feeling the muscles of your face. And then relaxing your face, softening. And then feeling your shoulders. Relaxing your shoulders. And if they don't relax, perhaps release them from the need to be held, to be tight. And then feeling your arms Softening, relaxing the muscles of your arms. Letting go into the pull of gravity. The tugs on your arms and your hands. Softening, relaxing. And feeling your chest and your rib cage. Softening and relaxing. 
the rib cage. And feeling your belly and softening, relaxing your belly. And finally to feel your legs and your feet, sensing and feeling what's there. And softening, gentling your legs and feet. And then all that together, from the top of your head to your feet, your whole body, in whatever way that's easy for you or approximates what I'm about to say, take a few moments to feel your whole body as if you're complete and whole sitting here, as if there's space for all of who you are to finally be here as it is and breathe in the middle of that. And if there's any tension or pressure in the thinking muscle you exhale, maybe you can soften that, relax. The pressures of a day. And then as we now turn our attention more fully to the breathing, to really connect to your breathing and continue this process of softening, relaxing. In the way that doesn't strain you, when you get to the end of your exhale, hold the end a little bit so you kind of Just let yourself stop right there for a few moments. Stopping at the end of the out-breath, see if you can let your body find ways to relax more fully. It's almost like by stopping, completely stopping breathing at the end of the out-breath. There's a room or tension, space to just soften more muscles. Certainly as soon as you feel like you need to, breathe in. And to do the same thing at the top of the exhale, not every time maybe, but when you feel like it's easy enough to do it. Stop the process of breathing at the top of the in-breath. 
and use that to relax the body. Shoulders, arms, belly. Almost like you're pausing to spend a few moments to more completely relax and soften. to now just breathe in a relaxed way without any pauses and allow yourself to take in, feel the experience of breathing. In a certain way, breathing is the meeting point of all aspects of our life. And to be able to settle into your breathing, and you're focusing at the center, the nexus, crossroads. the essential activities of being alive, breathing in and breathing out. And not so much trying to concentrate on the breath as attempting to be whole with the attention to the breathing. Attempting to let breathing support you in wholeness. to make room for that wholeness of yourself. Every time you exhale, let go of your thoughts. Let go of thoughts and let go into a quiet that allows you to sense and feel the breathing. Physically, it's an embodied experience.
And in whatever, in whatever way your mind can be silent, or the parts of the mind of awareness that are quiet, with thinking maybe in the background. Allow yourself to ride your breathing, feel the breath. Stay close to your breathing. Let the experience of breathing in and out fill the quiet places, the silence of awareness. Relax and let the experience of breathing have an influence on you. Be open to how breathing breathes you, massages you, maybe quiets you. Perhaps a concentrated state is more of a natural state that we allow to surface than it is something we work to attain. It's more something we love than something we demand.
and then like a pebble dropped into a pond, settles to the bottom of the pond. Let your awareness really drop into your body and settle into the bottom of your breath. Just breathing in and breathing out. As if for the next minutes, that's all that needs to happen is breathing. Perhaps you can let go of trying a lot, of trying hard to stay with the breathing, but to appreciate the mind's ability to, to be aware of breathing. It's an amazing thing that we have awareness. and to love this capacity to be aware of breathing. there's any way that your subject, subjective state, feels any goodness from settling in and being here with the meditation, breathe with that goodness, with that pleasure, that well-being. Include that in the wholeness of concentration, of awareness. Let that goodness support the natural ability to be here with awareness, just breathing, just aware.
And then finally to end the sitting, <clears throat> you might let go of any effort to be with the breathing, any effort to concentrate. And instead, let your awareness <clears throat> exist within your wholeness. Let your awareness expand to be, so there's a sense of completeness or wholeness, nothing excluded, just here with everything. And in being here with everything, everything is okay for now. So I would prefer to see the practice of concentration as a kind of love affair and then an engineering feat. And uh, I'm sure engineering is fun and wonderful and maybe some people see it as something to love in a sincere way. But the contrast between really being present in a way that's appreciates, values, loves, cares for, as opposed to approaching practice as a technique. <clears throat> if you do one, two, three, you know, paint by the numbers, that somehow then, <clears throat> you know, you'll get, get something wonderful. So I prefer that way. I mean, that's kind of an affair of the, of the heart to sit here and be here and open to what's here and and with that kind of attitude, I think it's also more, uh, at least for me, it's much more appealing to sit down and meditate in that way and be present. And I want to emphasize this at the end of this five-week course on concentration because of how easy it is to treat medit- uh, concentration and attainment of concentration states as a task, as a... As a technique, as a striving, as an accomplishment, as something to kind of, you know, maneuver, you know, kind of engineer one's way into. And um, and when that kind of approach is not a few people who practice concentration who do it with conceit, 
do it with expectation and frustration and uh, do it all, all kinds of problems arise. But if it's a kind of a affair of the heart or a love affair with yourself and you know, I think that it, it kind of mitigates or softens the egocentric ways in which sometimes the practice can go. The, um, th- there's been a tradition in for a few hundred years of treating uh, concentration practice or concentration states as being very distinct from mindfulness and vipassana and insight. So much so that there are people who emphasize there are, very, there are two radically different paths and you can take one or the other. There's another approach that uh, exists, existed probably back to the time of the Buddha, which also a current of teaching, that these two, uh, concentration and insight, concentration and mindfulness, work together. They're intimate partners. And in fact, for to really, it's one of the reasons I like teaching concentration is that for mindfulness and insight to do their fulfill their full potential of of what they're capable of doing for us, uh, the mind has to be pretty concentrated. Uh, and, uh, and you know, uh, to really attain probably equivalent, uh, that's an interesting word, equivalent, what, becoming equivalent to the first jhana, the first deep absorption. Because in that first uh, state of absorption, uh, there are no unwholesome tendencies. There's no, we're not wrapped around greed or hate or delusion. Something, if, it's kind of like, for some people, it's in kind of a, you know, like entering into a new continent, you know, it's a completely different world. To live, to be in a world where the mind has no unwholesome thoughts, no self-criticism, no anger, no, re- no resentment, no shame, no, you know, all the things. And, um, and, uh, but to, uh, to, to experience that allows the, the tightening, the resistance, the holding of those mind states to, to relax. And that's needed to have that so that they're not obscuring our vision. And so there starts to be kind of a, enough softness in the mind that there can be deeper and deeper layers, levels of letting go. And so with strong vipassana practice, uh, we go through some of the same uh, sequences of mind states as we do in going through the four jhanas. And uh, people who do a strong vipassana practice will recognize in their practice the jhanic factors we talked about last time, the, the uh, uh, initial and applied application of thought or attention, the joy and the rapture and the one-pointedness that happen, the equanimity. And, uh, and it's quite something to develop the concentration as we do mindfulness and have the mind become step-by-step, step, it goes deeper and deeper, quieter and quieter. And so these two, I really think, uh, work together in harmony or in, as partners in the practice. And, and so by teaching it a little bit, I'm hoping this will support you in your mindfulness practice. And, and if you do, spend some time only doing concentration practice, say concentration in the breathing, it's often a very good, it creates a very good condition to then when you're ready to switch back to mindfulness. The mindfulness tends to be greatly supported by that. The... Um, In uh, when uh, Buddhism, Buddhist texts were translated from Indic languages into Chinese, uh, it's, a, it's a delightful way. I think I'm delighted by this. 
they translated the, the, the Sanskrit, the Indian word for samadhi, they uh, translated by the Chinese character to stop. <laughs> so st- stop all you're running around. You just stop, you know. So, so because something does stop, you know, in the progressive stopping of things in deeper and deeper states where certain mental activities become quieter and quieter. So, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, they, uh, we stop the body and hold the body still and experience what's here. Uh, we stop the orbiting, you know, the, in space with our thoughts and preoccupations. Uh, we stop, we go deeper and deeper, having uh, unhealthy or unwholesome uns- uh, thoughts and ideas of what's here. And we stop at some point having thought you know, it gets simpler and simpler, the stopping. And the stopping, uh, the word stopping maybe is a little bit unfortunate if it implies somehow a freezing. Uh, and But it's not a freezing, it's a really a, a stilling. I like the word stilling more than stopping. It's deeper and deeper stilling into a softness, into a deep softness and peacefulness. But I wanted, the reason I talk about this the Chinese translating into, into uh, stopping, I want to read a passage from one of the most famous Chinese meditation um, texts from about the 6th century. And, um, and uh, so concentration is stopping and vipassana, uh, insight, they translate with a character for seeing. So it's stop and see. That's like all of Buddhism is found in just stop and see. Stop and look. You know, my mother told me. Gil, just stop and look. And so I, I had to wait until I came to Buddhism to believe her. <laughs> there are many paths for entering the reality of liberation. But in essence, they are all contained within two practices, stopping and seeing. Stopping is a primary gate for overcoming the bonds of compulsiveness Seeing is the essential requisite for ending confusion. Stopping is the wholesome resource that nurtures the mind. Seeing is the marvelous art which fosters intuitive understanding. Stopping is the effective cause of attaining concentrative repose. Seeing is the very basis of enlightened wisdom. A person who attains both concentration and wisdom has all the requisites for self-help and for helping others. It should be known then that these two techniques are like the two wheels of a chariot, the two wings of a bird. If their practice is lopsided, you will fall from the path. Therefore, the sutra says, to one-sidedly cultivate the merits of concentration Concentrative repose without practicing understanding is called dullness. To one-sidedly cultivate knowledge without practicing repose is called being crazed. Dullness and crazedness, although they are somewhat different, are the same in in that they both perpetuate an unwholesome perspective. So watch out. If you do one more than the other, you can get lopsided. You can get the wrong idea of what's going on. So here is this uh, sixth-century Chinese text that really makes this point of bringing these two together. And they have different functions, 
the insight and the concentration, but they work as partners. Uh, here it says they overcome the bonds of compulsiveness that uh, stopping does, concentration does. The Buddha said that uh, uh, developing concentration is one of the ways to overcome lust, strong desire. And uh, I think it's probably fair to say, and probably you recognize that certain kinds of lusts, very strong desire, are, you know, we often justify it or explain it away or do something. Oh, it's just, a, it's bio, biology, it's biological, you know, it's hormones. A deep, deep kind of uh, urges that we have that uh, for, for sex, for sensuality, for food, for many things. And, um, and it's hard to overcome. And uh, the Buddha, uh, uh, when he was asked about this, uh, didn't tell people, oh, just practice more mindfulness and you'll see your way out of it. Uh, he uh, advised people to develop concentration because there's something about the goodness of a concentrated state that, that uh, offers a wonderful alternative to the pleasures of, and, the, and the drives for sensual and even sexual desire when it's compulsive, like lust. And so to really become free of that uh, and to do it not because it's, you're being puritanical, not because you're kind of repressing it, but you're becoming free of the compulsivity of lust because you've kind of relaxed into something that's so much better. It's like, wow, you know, it's like something that's nourishing, something that feels really good. And this points to how in concentration states, uh, kind of what the focus is, or kind of a big part of what they are, is um, uh, an attention to our subjective state. The subjectively how we feel in these states is more important than the object of concentration. So we might have something we're focusing on, like the breathing, but it isn't like we're trying to see into the breath and understand something. We're just using that as the way to cultivate these, this subjective change within us that feels so good. And so to, it's our feeling to have the well-being well up that comes from you know, really letting go of our unhealthy thoughts, letting go of our unhealthy tendencies, having them become quiet and still, and then feeling the goodness and the wholeness and the wholesomeness that replaces it. And then being nourished by that. This idea of being nourished by meditation and taking it in, let it wash over you. This idea that we talked about last week of letting this goodness pervade you. Let it wash over you. And uh, and and that's... uh, it's often talked about it's profoundly healing to do that. It's profoundly healing to have to have this all this goodness come in. Some of us know that uh, the uh, regular uh, the, the atmosphere that we receive from other people growing up has a big impact on what's imprint, imprinted in us. And if we grow up with people who are always angry and always make us afraid, that's kind of conditioning that kind of gets soaked up and can, you know, can last for a lifetime. There's something about the deep state of concentration that, uh, uh, you know, maybe what I'm about to say is not quite right, but um, it's kind of like the power of suggestion or power of being open and receptive. It puts you in a very powerful receptive mode. And so that if you can create an atmosphere of goodness, of kindness, of wholesomeness, of well-being, 
that can uh, that can penetrate very very deep in and replace or heal or relax some of the difficult painful ways in which we've been imprinted by experiences of life um, and uh, and uh, so it isn't just a good well-being that comes from concentration that does it, but it's also that receptive state of mind or receptive state of the body that allows things to kind of be absorbed in a deep, deep way that feels so good and can be so healing. And so part of the function of this concentration is to open us up, to open, to allow ourselves to be open subjectively, to allow ourselves to be taken or be changed or be influenced in a subjective way. So here in this... Um, in this uh, ancient treatise, uh, stopping is the wholesome resource that nurtures the mind. I would say stopping is the wholesome resource which nurtures, I put body first, the body and the mind, just deeply nurturing, (coughs) nourishing and all that. So so there's states of joy, of happiness, of equanimity, of confidence, of, of peacefulness, tranquility that comes from concentration practice, all those are feelings that are felt physically and mentally. I call them the subjective feelings that come. Inside practice, in contrast, the, you, know, you know, can start sounding kind of not so much fun. But inside practice is more about um, the object if, if concentration practice is more about the subject, sub you, the subject, and concentration practice is more about the object of concentration. So now, the, the, uh, the experience of breathing becomes intimately interesting in its own right. It isn't just we stay with the breath, ride the breath, and get concentrated. Now, it's almost as if we don't care if we get concentrated so much. Um, but rather, we're really interested in what's the nature of the sensations? What's the nature of the experience? And whatever we bring our attention to, what's the nature of that experience? What's the qualities of it? How does it really show? What, what's really going on there in the direct experience of it? Part of the function of concentration is to quiet the mind so we don't have a lot of thoughts and concepts about that experience. We can start seeing it underneath the radar of concepts and ideas. And we enter into kind of a different world if we're not always projecting our ideas on top of it, our experience. So concentration practice helps us to quiet that conceptual projections we have. But then the focus of insight is to really see that's there, see what's there. And so it says here, seeing is an essential requisite for ending confusion. So to have insight, to really see what's going on in our reality, we have to have this, you know, the, the, the insight, the, the seeing. Seeing is the marvelous art which fosters intuitive understanding. It's the basis for enlightened wisdom. So the idea, that, so the, what, the main thing I wanted to emphasize right now is the idea of um, these two working together. And, um, and that concentration is really good to, to cultivate and develop. Uh, you can develop a lot of it just by doing mindfulness practice itself. But to know that, uh, but to be aware of some of the na- dynamics of uh, concentration, so that as you're doing mindfulness, you keep an eye on it, doing in such a way. Yes, the idea is to be really present and focused here. The idea is to have a stilling of the mind. The idea is to have some of these subjective states, uh, state shifts, begin happening. So how is it I can pay attention in such a way that I can really 
allow the natural capacity, natural processes of shifting to happen, of settling, of opening, of, of the wellspring of goodness to arise and surface, and to encourage me to stay with, stay with it. One of the reasons it's uh, very helpful for doing mindfulness practice to have the, the deep states of concentration, this well-being, well up, is that as we start seeing more and more carefully what's going on in our experience, uh, it's very common to go through a phase of practice that's quite difficult. Some people describe it as a dark night of the soul period. And it's a little bit surprising for some people because they'll be going through and, and they'll experience a lot of these jhanic factors, a lot of joy, a lot of happiness, tranquility, clarity, a lot of their practice, wow, this is the best and I need to get all my friends meditating. And then uh, sometimes it can be followed by a, t- a period of a lot of disequilibrium, a lot of uh, challenges and difficulties and distress that comes. And, uh, and it's, it's not a personal issue. It's not like now you need to have Prozac or, <clears throat> you know, or you need to go do therapy. It's just kind of like you're going through choppy waters. You're on your boat. You had clear sailing for a while, and that was great. And then you come into the place where the currents are really strong and currents meet and the water's all choppy. And you have to go through the choppy water to get to the other side, but it's just a you know, just the currents you're going through. And so we come so it's more like a natural process like that. As the concentration deepens in mindfulness mindfulness deepens, it's not uncommon for people to go through kind of a choppy time and and a hard time. It's a, it's a lot easier to go through it if we go into it with all this strong sense of well being of concentration, the stillness of concentration. So that um, sometimes the goodness and the pleasure, the well-being of the concentration can persist and kind of be the support to go through it without getting distressed, the difficulties. Uh, Also, if the concentration has produced a mind that's relatively quiet, not thinking a lot, then we're less likely to uh, make stories around the distress. Uh, You know, make stories and make it worse. And this is, and the idea of you know we're kind of storytellers, right? So. And not all our stories are, you know, happy stories. They don't begin happy and they don't end happy. And the middle is not happy. So why do we tell ourselves these stories? But, you know, we tell ourselves stories. And so, so we start feeling the choppy water of meditation. And, uh, and then, you know, that reminds me that I'm always a failure. And here I am failing again. And, you know, and then I start spinning out in the wonderful story of failure. But if the mind is quiet enough... It's not going to pick up because those those story-making mind. It's not going to tell a story that oh here I am failing again. It'll just say to you, oh choppy water. Oh this is like oh, look at that. This is distress. <laughs> wow, that's something. And so it makes it it can make it easier to go through this because we don't have the wind drag of stories. We don't have the wind drag of kind of sinking into the strong negative feelings. So concentration practice, uh, concentration states, is a very important partner to all this. Um, so I've, we've now, I've been talking for almost an hour with this little, the teachings and with this guided meditation. Anything that you want to say about that meditation we had, about questions about this concentration teaching, and um... 
Hi, Gil. Thanks. Um, yeah, I had a really nice time in our meditation tonight. Some radiating, tingling, and you know, uh, feeling good. Um, you know, achieving and, and sort of being good at things. I know is a big part of my identity. That's a story you tell yourself. That's a story I tell myself. It's very important to me. Um, so, congratulating myself a lot during the meditation. Oh, so look at what a good job I'm doing. This is really great. Um, <laughs> well, well, I, you we're laughing a little bit, and we know we know that's a human tendency. Uh, it's not a crime or a sin to do that, and and even if it's helpful, tell yourself that story. It just stop, just stop to doing it when it stops being helpful. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that's the strongest attachment. I. I decided, well, that's the shape of my mountain. I'll be inclusive. I like to congratulate myself. That's, that's the shape of my stone. Great, great. Cool. Lovely. But I'm still congratulating and very attached to that, you know, identifying. Well, you're myself, very so. attached, but the fact that you can speak about it this way and with such uh, clarity, some part of you is not attached. Some part of you is beginning to see, see clearly what's going on and have some wisdom about it. And... Um, so I think it's good. So I would carry on and just keep seeing it, keep recognizing, keep being honest about it. And, um, and as long as it seems to kind of encourage you to keep meditating, don't try to get rid of it too quickly. Okay, but at some point, you'll, some point, you'll feel oh, like it's a wind drag. And this is not helpful. And at that point, you can let go. Thank you. Does that, does that seem relevant? Uh, yes, the encouragement is... is Great. Yeah. Okay, Great. good, Thank good. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're quite accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> Don't encourage me like that. So I just wanted to... Um, I think for me there isn't a lot of difference or there's only like a subtle difference between my concentration practice and my mindfulness practice. Because when I'm, I, I understand and I feel what you mean about like kind of expanding into myself and not, you know, without concentrating on any particular thing. But when I do mindfulness practice, I try to... to so I, I couldn't hear. When you do mindfulness practice, can you turn it up a little bit? Because I'm... The blue one. The green. When I do mindfulness practice, I feel like I try to do as little as possible and to touch everything ever so softly. Beautiful. Okay. I just want to make sure that was okay. I think that either a subtle difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can experiment with these. In different times, it feels more to do some one or the other. But yes, with mindfulness practice, you want to get really close to something. And as a pr- you know, sometimes it's useful to have an expansive awareness. And then as we settle in more and want to do mindfulness practice, that expansive awareness is used to feel intimately uh, something particular, to touch it. And I don't know if I did this yet. I might have done this already, right? The open hand here. So, yeah. so um, you know, you want to keep your mind open and expansive. And so learning, using concentration practice and other ways to have this open, expansive, relaxed mind, uh, open consciousness or expansive consciousness is very helpful but then the soft part of the hand, the palm, is, um, is also where it's most sensitive, right in the middle. And so if you want to do mindfulness practice, you want to kind of really be close to something in particular. See, the open awareness, expansive mind, is not really connected to something particular. It's very broad. For mindfulness practice, as it deepens, you want to connect to what's particular. And so you want to 
place the particular sensations of breathing, whatever you're paying attention to, really feel the details of it in that soft spot of the mind, kind of, or like in the palm. Is that close enough to what I'm... Am I kind of affirming what you said, or...? Yes, it is. And what the principle that when I first came here that I always fall back upon was you said, the mind will heal itself if you just let it. And so that's kind of my underlining premise is just, is just let it do what it's going to do. Yes, but uh, you can let it do what it wants to do, uh, but you want to be uh, very uh, cognizant of what it's doing. Wait, wait, okay, I, I didn't express it right. I'm aware of the I am aware of the path, but it's making its own path. Is that better? Right. Yes. Yeah. It's that awareness of what is going on that it makes a world of difference. If you just let your mind do whatever it wants to do, uh, half of us will be in insane asylums quickly. Right. <laughs> but it's but it's the it's the allowing the mind to free, but being clearly aware of what it's doing that changes the whole landscape and tends to move it in a healthy direction. Up here in the front. Couple, couple things. Um, I noticed in this series that every time I, I do those kind of meditation that you're guiding us in the concentration. I always have tears that come out, but they are not sad tears. They are not sad tears. Um, it's kind of like I don't want to even touch them. I just want to enjoy them. <laughs> it's, uh, but it only happens like when when we do this. Um, the second thing is today. Um, you said something like. Hmm. Oh, it's kind of like the concentrated state with like a natural thing. You have to kind of, you know, take out all the extra thing to kind of drop there. And um, I was really back in, strange, being a baby. Mm. Like it just felt like, wow, this was a time when all I had to do was breathing. Mm. It was just like that. It was just felt so happy. Um, yeah. Nice, nice. Uh, as I think some of you know, that um, uh, that the Buddha uh, kind of, uh, when he kind of rediscovered the path of concentration or discovered it, it was by remembering a childhood experience of being concentrated. And so, and, and when I started doing my practice, I was surprised that I started remembering forgotten memories of childhood mm-hmm. where I had also had concentration states. And that felt so healthy and good. It was the goodness of it was so great that I'd forgotten for, uh, you know, 15 years or something. And then, oh, I remembered that. And so for you, you go that far back to, to babyhood. And, but, that, but that happens to some people. But for those of you who don't have those kinds of memories, don't feel bad. Uh, it's, you, you just, you'll just have a different way. But it's not uncommon for that to happen. Yeah. That was so strange. There was a, a, a picture of myself in the crib that... You know, I had seen a long, long time ago, and those eyes were just looking at me like in bliss, and I was watching, but inside at the same time. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Thank you. So, so. On, uh, when you talked about receptivity, I, I thought about my cousin who was an unusually receptive person. And the thing I remembered is, if I was talking to him about, you know, if I went over to him and said, I can't open this bottle of aspirin, what do I do? He would get completely absorbed in it, you know, too. At the same time, if I went to him and said, God, the most embarrassing thing happened, I said this awful thing about somebody and she heard it, and I don't know what to do, he would also concentrate. He didn't, I mean, he would also be receptive. He was receptive, equally receptive, no matter what happened. Is that what we're trying to do? Is it like what we're doing when we talk about receptive, that it's whatever occurs, we're receptive? Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I do understand what you mean. Uh, I think it's a beautiful quality and a wonderful way of being. And uh, I think I have to process it a little bit to know, do we, is that exactly what we're doing mm-hmm. all the time? Yeah. Um, uh, I, mean, um, I mean, I think sometimes we're learning to be receptive and sometimes we're learning to be active. Oh, Some, sometimes yeah. we engage and sometimes we step back and receive. Mm-hmm. But the idea of being really, pr- I guess the middle way between that is to be present. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things that goes on, some people, some meditation teachers, will emphasize, uh, give instructions that are all about being receptive. Maybe because that's what worked for them. Other meditation teachers will say much more active instructions because that's what worked for them. And, um, and so there's these two ranges, right? But as the practice, either, whichever one you do, as the, as the practice deepens, they come together. And at some point, it doesn't make any sense to say that the practice is either active or receptive. So, so, so let's, get, let's, get th- let's get there. Um, I just had a little bit of a follow-up question because I also, I think I'm working with a little bit of a sloppy shorthand of this idea of mindfulness as sort of seeing through a telescope and then the concentration is sort of the tripod that gives it the stability. I've said something like that, yeah. And I guess just in my mind, I think with that analogy, I think of, I tend to think of the mindfulness more as the kind of, the bubbling up, like sort of allowing something to sort of bubble up Mm -hmm. and then of the concentration as a more, I guess I associate it with discipline or um, with a more active uh, tendency. But I I think that that's, that's a sort of false distinction. So I was just wondering if, if there's some distinction between concentration and mindfulness that could kind of clarify that, like that, that active receptive range can happen in both. I don't think uh, active receptive is the way we distinguish between mindfulness and concentration. Uh, uh, there can be. Uh, it depends a little bit what's needed in, at any given time, and also what uh, how individual people's brains work. What's most supportive and helpful. It's good to know that there's an active mode. It's good to know that there's a receptive mode there. And, uh, and so sometimes with concentration practice, in order to develop concentration, you just have to be really active. I mean, I, mean, I don't know about your mind, but my mind, uh, you know, has a mind of its own sometimes. And, you know, I'm tired and my mind is thinking and spinning out. And I, I say, okay, Gills, you know, be present and I stay with the breath. And I can do half a breath before, you know, I'm gone for five minutes and... 
you know, and then I come back and, okay, stay there. You've been doing this for a long time. And mind goes off and, you know, goes off. And, and then I feel bad and I'm a meditation teacher. And now, you know, everyone's, dis- everyone's, everyone's, dis- everyone's discouraged. And I've just failed the whole series by telling you that my mind is that way. And so then I can't get concentrated at all. And so my mind's even spinning more. So in situations like that, sometimes it's just manual labor. I come back and it's active. I come back. If I try to be receptive when I'm in that state, I just spin out even more. And so that, I, then I, I, for me, I might be very active and it just feels like manual labor. It's not pretty. It's not nice. It's not rewarding. <laughs> it just, but I'm just coming back, coming back, coming back because I know if I keep doing that, something some point changes. And so I just trust that process. Other times... Of, uh, I find out that what's really not helpful is just back off and don't do anything. Just be very receptive. Sometimes when the mind is really busy and active, that's what's needed. Sometimes when the mind is really still and quiet, um, that's really a good time for to be receptive. And however, other times when the mind is really still and quiet, that's the right time to be a little more active and be a little more engaged and look more carefully. So we have these two modes. And part of the art of meditating is to kind of experiment and know which one is needed at different times to find our way. So that doesn't distinguish mindfulness and concentration. Um, uh, the uh, uh, concentration helps us to stabilize and settle the subjective mind. Mindfulness helps to see clear, clearly what's happening. So... Maybe, maybe an example would be um, if you're at the beach and, or let's say you're at the edge of a river and uh, there's you know, the little waves and the current is flowing by and, uh, and you can get, people can get absorbed looking at the river and, uh, or looking at a fi- fire in a fireplace or something. And you kind of just kind of take it in and take it in the hole and you're not studying it, you're just taking it all in it's, and you're getting very settled in that process. Uh, or it's possible to kind of look at every little wavelet and notice, look at that little wavelet and look how that little current swirls and it swirls in this way and then it moves that way. And you're kind of really present for the details. So concentration is more holding yourself present, holding your attention there so that something behind the attention settles and gets quiet. Mindfulness is more like... uh, uh, it's, not, it's more about seeing what's the nature of the waves. Look at that. They come and they go and they bounce up and down. And, mm. and you can, afterwards you can do, do a little, you can tell your friends exactly all about what those waves were like and how the swirl and curl currents were like because you really saw it clearly. When you do concentration, you, you'd tell your friends, well, I was watching the river. What did, what did it look like, the river? Oh, I don't know, but let me tell you how good it felt. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm I really appreciated the the metaphor of the lover versus the engineer, um, and I feel um. There's a, there's definitely a, a lot of engineer inside me, so um, as well as the 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 approach of just loving loving this this path. But I wonder if you could um, satisfy the engineer in me 
I, I sometimes I'm I'm just not clear where I am. You know, so I sometimes I think about the seven factors of awakening. So that starts with mindfulness, and then goes to samadhi if I'm remembering it correctly. So, so start with the tripod. But, but here we start with the, with the tripod as the, is sort of the base upon which you put the telescope. So I have metaphor confusion here. But if you, in, in, the, in the factors of awakening, you start with mindfulness. You start with that telescope, but there's no tripod yet. So <laughs> tell me I'm just thinking too much and I'm, I'll shut up. But um, that's, that's the engineer thing in me. And I'm, sometimes I just don't know where I am when I'm meditating. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, often, I'm sort of habitually thinking about the factors, you know, um, but with, with this new information you're giving, I'm just, I just find myself a little bit confused. So, be that uh, that you're thinking too much, maybe I'm teaching too much. <laughs> <laughs> the um, so. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you've been meditating for some time. You said you're really, into, you're, you're kind of committed to the path and all that. So I would like to suggest that you already have a reference point inside for figuring out your way with that, this. Uh, and that reference point would be uh, that you already know something about what you have to do to address how you are at this moment so that you're a little bit more at ease and more peaceful, more accepting, more settled about what's happening. And uh, if you use that as the guideline, then you, maybe you can answer your own question. So if if you're so if you say you want to do mindfulness, um, then you know forget about you know and there's no tripod. How do you how do you use mindfulness? How do you engage and be, pay attention and see what's going on in such a way that it moves you to a greater sense of acceptance, of peace, of ease, or equanimity? What's here, and maybe some wisdom of what's here. So it's beneficial for you, and so you kind of kind of have a sense of oh, this is how the way to go, because I'm afraid. And then the same thing with uh, you know, if you want to do a little more concentration, if you, you have some intuition, I think right now I want to do concentration. So how do I hold my attention in a disciplined way, a committed way, a loving way, on the breath, and don't let it waver from there, come back over and over again? How do I do that so that I'm not straining or thinking a lot or spinning out? How do I do it so there's this, this you know, good quality, good, good, good movement? And I think that's your job to figure out. And I think you have enough experience to have some sense of how to smell your way to that. If I give you an answer, the engineering answer that you're asking for, which is reasonable that you ask, uh, it might just strengthen the engineer. <laughs> it might it might just give you more options, like, oh, one more thing to do and figure out, and, you know, how do I fit this in, and... So rather than giving you one more option of what to do, I think I think I bet you have already the resources inside you to find your way. Is that okay, answer? Yeah, fair enough. Thank you. Okay. So So as the mind gets quieter, stiller, as it would with concentration, as, uh, uh, and there's less agitation of the mind, that allows the mind to see more clearly. And there's a number of things that are helpful to see. And um, 
it's helpful to see clinging. It's helpful to see our suffering, our, our discomfort, our tensions. And it's helpful to see the non-clinging, the, the, the non-agitation states. It's helpful to see the nature of desire and how desire works on us and the effect that desire has. And it's helpful to be able, be able to see that part of the mind or that way of being or, the, or the, see clearly the times when there's no desire. It's helpful to really see the nature of, of aversion and anger and blame. And, and then it's helpful to see when those are not there. And so this is the function of mindfulness, to see clearly these different mind states we're in, the different ways they were caught, the nature of clinging, get to know it well. And then, um, and, and to really take time to see it clearly. People who focus too much on concentration tend to want to get rid of these things quickly. And even people who do mindfulness are doing it partly to get rid of these things. But actually the function of mindfulness to, to, to really do this path well is to use the practice of mindfulness to see clearly what's there. And to have that kind of clarity, it helps if we're non-reactive. It helps if we're not projecting a lot of stories on things. But just kind of just, oh, the, just we can sit back and just see. And so concentration can, uh, some, some modicum of concent- concentration of subtleness uh, helps us to focus, be still, not have all this agitation that gets in the way. And uh, so we can see. And then we want to see uh, the, the elements of what, makes us hurt or suffering or distress or fear and we want to be able to see these kinds of th- the suffering we want to recognize and be with it and um, and learn how to be with it in a wise way equanimous way and see how it operates and one of the great things to see uh, is to see uh, the mind free of clinging to have a view, to have an insight, to have a view, a perspective, where we have a clear sense uh, that right on the edges of any clinging we have, there is non-clinging. It can be as clear as, you know, I'm holding this bell up here, and, um, and I see the edges of the bell, and it's very clear as I look at the edges of the bell and the edges, that there's all this space, there's all this non-bell there's actually more non-bell beyond the bell than there is bell. So I'm looking at desire, and desire, it's almost as if desire has a sh- shape, almost, you know, it's like a thing, something particular, and it's really clear that there's non-desire, there's much more freedom around it than there is desire. And so to have, be able to have insight and see and have and, and be able eventually to have this liberating view, a view that's liberating, that comes from having seen clearly the, the experience, the nature of non-clinging, of freedom, of non-desire. And then to be able to kind of see that it's always here. It's always present. And you can kind of actually, you know, look freedom right in the eye. You can just see freedom here. Um, and it helps if you can do that. If you don't, uh, you haven't, you've learned to look kind of beyond the experience or say differently, you've learned not to identify or personalize or 
give too much authority, too invested in the particular desires and clingings and fears and aversions that might come up. When we over-invest in them, they become the whole world. But if we see them just as a phenomena, just a thing that's there, the mind does it, and be able to see liberation right right next door to it, it's right there, all around it, then it puts puts desire and aversion and fear in a whole different context. And we don't have to be so caught by it in the grip of it. We don't have to be pushed around by it so much. And we have this wonderful um, medicine or this wonderful inspiration or this wonderful teacher or guide that's available to show us to greater and greater freedom. So that's, you know, that's kind of the function of the mindfulness uh, practice is to lead us to that kind of insight and to see. Concentration is a support for that. And uh, when you when you want when you want to fo- cultivate concentration and spend time focusing that most, and then when you want to focus most on mindfulness, you know that's an, that's part of the art of all this. Um, and when and then you, and then how do you bring them together? This is part of the art of it. And um, and uh, don't worry too much about doing it right. Don't worry too much about how you engineer it and what's the right thing to do. And just do the best you can. Be relaxed. Figure out, just do, do your best guess. And then just go along and do something. Don't worry about you have to be just perfect. And you know, Because <clears throat> uh, I think that a big part of how we grow in meditation practice and grow in Buddhism is um, is not about experiencing something that you can measure in the moment. I'm doing it right. This is what's you know, I'm on, on track. It turns out that one of the biggest benefits comes from just doing it over and over and over again. Ideally, every day, just do it. And it's in, you know, a lot of the really important changes that's going to come and how you learn and find your way and how you slowly um, happens gradually and you grow gradually and imperceptibly. And that's gradual and imperceptible growth is what's enduring and valuable and really, and then slowly you get the hang of it. And slowly you'll understand uh, the choices you have in meditation and how to get concentrated and when to to cultivate mindfulness and how to bring these together. Um, These are, what I'm, I'm talking about here are all important elements of meditation practice. And you can certainly, you know, focus on different elements for a while and make it a study and practice it. And some people find it's really helpful to specialize in one aspect like concentration for a while or just mindfulness for a while. But I want to end this class on concentration by emphasizing my belief that um, it's invaluable to just do the practice day after day. Do the best you can. Don't be too concerned about that every time you meditate it has to be the right way or the perfect way or just do it. It's self-correcting, it's self-verifying, it's self, um, you know, guided the whole thing into a large degree. You do the best you can, but don't worry too much about it. Just do the best you can and just keep doing it. 
So is that enough? Good. So thank you for doing this, uh, you know, coming along and being part of this. I hope that this is beneficial for all of you. And, um, and I hope that, uh, that uh, your engagement in whatever meditation you do is uh, part of one big love affair with yourself and with life. Thank you.